and welcome to episode 68 of Onion Unlimited, the podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Torridon, and you join me live from Rotherham, UK, as I prepare to delve into the nature of self. In this episode, I will be discussing I am my being, what I am. I am in the universe, my perception of self, my place in the universe. And when I am not, what happens when I die or even when humanity is no more? To help me all the way from Cleveland, Ohio, is my good buddy Chris, a.k.a. the Two Tongues Podcast. How are you, Chris? I'm doing fantastic, Daniel. Happy to be back. Today, we are going to be looking at a number of books, in particular this one, which is available on my Onion Unlimited website, entitled The Book on the Taboo of Knowing Who You Are. There it is, paperback. £7.25 or just £3.79 for the Kindle edition. <laughs> I was going to send you this book, actually, Chris, via email, but it wouldn't let me send it outside the UK for some reason. So. Interesting. I thought about that myself. I actually Googled um, how to, if I could send Amazon to the UK. Like, could I make a purchase in the US and send it to you? Uh, but it doesn't, <laughs> it's not straightforward. It's not straightforward. <laughs> no. There we go. So we'll be looking at some quotes and some insight on the book on the taboo against knowing who you are. Um, That is a book by a gentleman called Alan Watts, who was born in 1915, I believe, and he died around about 1975. He was an English writer, speaker and self-styled philosopher known for interpreting Japanese, Chinese, and Indian traditions of Buddhist, Taoist, and Hindu philosophy for a Western audience like ourselves. Mm. And I believe you've got some books as well, haven't you, Chris, that you want to uh, highlight this afternoon? What are they? I do. I'm, I mostly want to talk about a difficult book. Uh, this, is, uh, this is Hegel, Friedrich Hegel, um, Phenomenology of Spirit. So when I when I found that we were going to talk about the self today, it, my mind immediately went to the opening paragraph of that book. So we'll get to it. <laughs> Just repeat that again. What's it called? Phenomenology of Spirit. Very good. So we look forward to that. So uh, to set the scene, this is a quote from uh, Alan Watts. He says, every intelligent individual wants to know what makes them tick. And yet is at once fascinated and frustrated by the fact that oneself is the most difficult of all things to know. For the human organism is, apparently, the most complex of all organisms. And while one has the advantage of knowing one's own organism so intimately from the inside, there is also the disadvantage of being so close to it that one can never quite get at it. Nothing eludes conscious inspection as consciousness itself. That's good. It is, yeah. It's a paradox, isn't it? It is a paradox, yes. We are kind of inside this uh, this body and we feel like we are most familiar with ourselves, don't we? It's, you know, we live with ourselves every day, wake up with ourselves every day, go to bed with ourselves every day. But do we really understand ourselves? I don't think I do. About you? No, not at all. And in fact, I was listening to um, more of that uh, Bernardo Castro who I mentioned last time. Hmm. 
and he, he, he said something that caught my attention. He said that in his 30s, he started realizing that this is going to be weird, but he said he started to realize his inner voice, which he calls his daemon the way that Socrates did. Um, but you might call it your, your conscience, you know, mm. it's that his inner voice in, in, until he was in his 30s, he couldn't distinguish his thoughts, his own thoughts from his inner voice. And then he eventually started to make this distinction between the this voice inside of him. It's almost like something alive, something independent of him, but it's always there with him. And uh, I thought that was really interesting. It's, it makes me wonder how many selves we have contained in this body, something like that. Mm, that's interesting. I would agree with that. And I, I feel very similar. For me, it was around about my 30s, I think, when... I started to feel as if I was, I don't know how to put this, um, like I was a, a person inside a person, mm. like there was a this physical body, Daniel the body, and then this this completely different entity within, almost like the body was just a shell, and I was on the uh, the inside looking out. I've got a few little quotes from the Bible that you might find interesting. Yes. Um, Genesis 1, verse 26, which is uh, where God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Now, the word man there in Hebrew is Adam ha, or ha-adam. Man, ha-adam. And then... In verse 7 of chapter 2, it says, The Lord God formed a man, so that would be Ha-Adam, from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. <laughs> formed man from the dust of the ground. The Hebrew word for of the ground is Ha-Adama. Mm. Interesting. <laughs> so man, Ha-Adam, which is where we get Adam, Adam from, Mm-hmm. is the same word, same root word, as the ground, Adam. So that is what we are. That's interesting, yeah. It, it makes me think of um, dualism, you know, mind and mm-hmm. mind and body. So the earth uh, that was used to, to form, you know, the human, the, the human form, the human body, um, you know, to me that relates to the physical and then the breath breathed into the body, the breath of life breathed into the body is clearly an image of the spirit. And so you have in the Bible kind of a dualism, you know, uh, that's yes. being introduced, the mind and the body together. I don't know if it's fair to call dualism because man wasn't man until he had both. So maybe, maybe I'm reading into it. I agree. Yeah. From the biblical perspective, you get this idea of, um, well, it says the Lord God forming a man from the dust. It, it almost sort of implies to me that he actually, almost like you would form a pot from clay. You know, mm, yes. He ended up, to start with, with just a, an unanimated corpse. That's what it would be, made out of dirt. Genesis 3, verse 19, after man had sinned, this becomes really clear because he, he says, uh, God says to Adam, you're going to return to the ground for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you you shall return. And that's often said at uh, funerals, isn't it? When it's uh, you know, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, when all there is, apparently, at that point, is just a, a corpse. 
mm. which is nothing more, and it sounds a bit morbid, but nothing more than um, dust and dirt. I think the, the Message Bible, which is a bit of a paraphrased Bible, it, it translates that verse, um, you are dirt, <laughs> and you shall go back to dirt. <laughs> so, so I want to maybe I'll insert this. I don't know if this is premature, Daniel, but since they brought up Bernardo again, hmm. uh, one of the things he said that struck me was he was talking about people with um, multiple personality disorder and people that literally have multiple independent consciousnesses existing within themselves. Yep. And, and the scientific literature calls each individual an alter. Yeah. So each personality within that body is called an alter, which I thought was strange. But hear me out. You just talked about forming the human body out of clay. And it made me think of of an idol. Right. The kind of thing you would put on an altar. And and so it, what an altar is, is a place where God comes to rest. You know, when you go into a temple, when you go into the temple and you go to the Holy of Holies, uh, obviously, Gentiles aren't allowed there. And most of the Jews aren't allowed there, but the high priest goes in and he's in the presence of God because the altar that was built is the place where God comes to rest. And the reason I think this is interesting is because God creates this clay image like an idol and breathes life into it, puts his spirit, his animating spirit into the idol. So the idol is the place where God, God comes to rest. Um, and I, I, you can see that as a, an idol in a temple, but you can see that as a human being. And like a human being is, a, to use Bernardo's terms or the scientific uh, literature's terms, an altar. So we are a place where the, right, our body is, a, is the temple of God. That's what the Bible tells us. So we mm. are just like the, 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 the altar in the Holy of Holies. We're the place where God goes to rest. I love it. As you were saying that, that reminded me the account of Jesus when he went to be baptized by John. Mm. And John said, how will I know this one? And the Lord said, it will be the one where the spirit comes down and settles upon him. Uh, I like it. I wonder if that was, um, whether anything, well, I'm sure actually something specific happened to Jesus at the point when the spirit of God settled upon him Mm. and inhabited him. He went from being, and I mean this in total respect, just a man, just a carpenter, just another guy to being inhabited by the very spirit of God. And some would say God himself, wouldn't they? Yes, absolutely. Now I I read that story of Jesus coming up out of the water and Mm. the dove and the dove descending and Jesus hears the voice of God saying, you are my beloved son and I'm yes. in whom I'm well pleased. Right. So I just try to put myself in that position. I just try to imagine that I'm in a religious setting and I have this experience where this the sky opens and I hear the voice of God. And I can't help but imagine that as a mystical experience, as a religious experience. So some people would might bring up psychedelic experience. Like I, I would. I would be one to do that. I would say that to me sounds like a psychedelic experience uh, that an extreme version, a religious version. Um, I don't know what what you think of that, but the idea. 
I agree. Yes, there's, um, I mean, we're coming at this from two different angles, but my spiritual awakening was back in 2004, achieved through, I guess, deep thought and meditation. But it did feel very much, I think, in my last podcast, or the podcast before, the one entitled um, The Serpent Awakens, it did feel very much like the hand of God resting upon me, mm. as if his spirit was infusing into me. That, that, that's how it felt, you know, and that's why I, at the time, concluded I was born again. And since then, I've kind of expanded that and said it was more of a spiritual experience. But I can see you could, you could get the same feeling. I can see that almost jump-started through psychedelics, couldn't you? I think, sure. I mean, I've never had a psychedelic experience. You can probably tell, tell me, but when you're, when you're having a uh, psychedelic experience, does it feel very much like there are uh, kind of two of you, a, a physical body and this kind of mind separate? I don't know. Yeah, well, the, the, the experiences differ depending on the substance and dosage and all that sort of thing. But the visual, the visual type of experience that I might be able to point to, something like a DMT experience, like a, a, an ayahuasca trip. Um, I, I can tell you that I had an experience one time where you can imagine this like a fantasy or a waking dream, but it was a psychedelic experience where I was standing on one side of a great body of water. And it was very dreamlike. So the big body of water turns into a stream and it's almost like you could just step right over it. It's no longer intimidating. But on the other side of the stream, I saw a form that looked like a man and it was dark and shadow. There was no features to the face at all. I couldn't tell what it was, but it was it was scary to me. As you can imagine, if you're in a psychedelic, if you're in your mind and there you encounter another being, you're like, what are you doing in my mind? So mm. I, I was scared and, um, you know, but, in, but inquisitive. So I'm staring at this form and I notice that when I move, it moves. When I put my hand up, it puts its hand up. So I, quickly I realized that the thing that I was looking at wasn't another being. It was me. It was my unconscious. That's how I un interpreted it. It was the unconscious form of me. And I reached over. I got obviously brave. I reached over and I, I grab it because I know if I reach, it's going to reach. So I grab it. I grab its hand. And then what happened was a whirlwind. I was spinning on each side of the bank. You know, I was on my side and then I was on the unconscious side and he, it was on my side and back and forth and back and forth. And I remember being afraid to let go because I didn't want to let go and be on the wrong side. I didn't want to be in the unconscious. I was afraid of it. Mm. I, I tell you that only because I honestly feel like the beings that you might experience in a psychedelic experience aren't independent, that they're, that they're parts of your own self. Yes. Yes. We'll talk a little bit later about death. It's all very, all very positive today. <laughs> um, but death, you know, that's the dissolution of ego to the extreme, isn't it? But um, I always imagine that when I die, and I go to the other side, so to speak. I shall discover the other side is just me. There's, there's, no, there's no God or lots of angels or whatever. That's a perspective I see from this side of things. But once I'm assimilated back into my true nature, I shall just realize 
hang on a minute, it was me all along. So listen, I want to add what you just said there. It was me all along. That reminds me of mystical experience. It, it, because yes. one, one of the, there's basically two things that you take away from a mystic experience um, and like, they're like they vary. So it could be very different types of experiences, but in every case, you have a, a unity, you have a feeling of being one with the universe. So that's one part of it. The other part of it is that it's familiar. Yes. And this is, this is the strangest thing. It feels like remembering. It feels like going to a place that you've, that you've been, that you're familiar with. It's so strange. It's the most alien experience and yet the most familiar experience at the same time. Alan Watts in uh, the Taboo book ex- explains it as a divine game of hide and seek. <laughs> I like that. Yes. Yes. Um, just coming back to this idea that we are a body for a moment. Mm. <laughs> I did some research and that's actually what the human body is made up of, just to prove the point that it is actually dust. <laughs> it's all <laughs> the elements that we get out of the ground and... There's your percentages, 18% carbon, a lot of oxygen in there. Mm. I, uh, I worked it out, and if you were to uh, sell your elements, <laughs> you'd be worth £120, I think it was, which was $141.82 in your money. Yeah, not a whole lot, is it? <laughs> not a lot, no. Under $150, you can buy a new person. But this is the point, really, isn't it? That it's, it's so much, so much more than just the body. There was a quote in the book that said, a consistent nominalist will have to be forced into the position that there really is no such thing as the human body. There are only the particular molecules of which it is composed or only the particular atoms, not to mention electrons, protons, neutrons, and so forth. And uh, I've got another little picture here for you. <laughs> this is good. <laughs> wow. An atom is about 99.9% empty space. If you were to take all the empty space out of all the atoms in all the people alive today, our entire human race could fit in a sugar cube. Wow. <laughs> wow. It does put it into perspective. Bodily, it's not, we're not really that much, are we, when we look at it like that? It begs the question, if there's more, if the value in the human being goes beyond the atoms. Well, exactly, because I, I've i often had this thought of where does I, as in the body, where, where do I end and mm. where does not I begin? Mm. The skin, our skin is always considered like a barrier, isn't it, to what separates us from the outside world. But if you were to draw a circle on a piece of paper, what what is the reality there? Is 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 the is the thing the circle, or is the thing what's outside the circle? It could it could equally be a hole in mm. a in a wall. Mm. This idea of like our skin being the barrier for us, it's as much our skin is as much the outside of the universe as it is the outside of us. If that makes sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Where where does where do I stop and the universe begins? It doesn't really. We're we're kind of connected to everything. Yeah. So I've talked about that using the example of the sun and what I, mm-hmm. and this connects to what you said. And I'll, I'll I'll give you the summary version. It goes like this: If you're trying to ask yourself what the sun is, one of the things you might do is to 
try to determine where the sun stops, right? So you have this big burning ball of gas. And if you look up into the sky, you see a kind of a vague circular shape and you might think, well, that's the sun, you know, the vague circular shape. But the thing is the sun is burning gas and that's, you know, it's pushing radiation out into space and that radiation is traveling millions of miles before it reaches us. Hmm. And so you say, well, is the sun limited to the visible part you can see, or does it include the heat that comes off the sun? Oh, it does include the heat. Okay, so that that heat then travels all the way to the earth and it goes it, it shines down on me and it gets absorbed into my skin and it turned it into vitamin D and I need that to live. Does that mean the vitamin D is the sun and my body is the sun? Well, in yeah. a way, it, it kind of does, doesn't it? So does the sun end there? Well, no, not really, though. The sun lands on the plants, causes the plants to grow. The rest of the animals eat the plants and so and so on and so forth. The sun doesn't stop. Well, it doesn't stop, does it? It doesn't. No. There's this interconnectedness, literally, between every single physical thing that exists, even down to the idea that us as humans, we are of the earth. We've come from the earth, made of the earth, and then inhabited by some divine spirit. Mm. But from a body perspective, we are actually stardust because the earth itself is just breakaway bits of um, Earth, probably probably from some explosion of another planet or sun. or And then we've come from that, haven't we? So. Yeah, it, get, it gets stranger when you – and you've done this before, so this won't strike you as strange. But if you go back to Einstein, you know, mm-hmm. E equals C square, and you say, well, if the matter that we're pointing to is actually just a different form of energy – um, that whole other mystery there, because I don't under, first of all, energy is not material, is it? So no. I, I still don't exactly understand, and I'm not sure science understands what energy is. So if that's the root of matter and it's all connected and it's all energy, that's not even material. It's not like, not like the earth at all. No, you know? And even, even material things aren't material. Right. If, if you go down to the uh, you go down to the atom and you think, well, that's material because you can still kind of manipulate it on a physical level, you know, poke it, prod it, move it around. But when you start going down to the uh, the bits, the, the particles that make up the actual atoms, so you're talking about the uh, the the protons and neutrons, electrons, even the quarks that make those up. Once you get down to the quarks, you are actually talking about packets of energy. That's it's essentially a wave. It's like a wave frequency, some sort of, and and a wave in what? That's the thing. You know, when you look at an ocean, you say, well, there's a wave of an ocean. It's a wave of water. But what is a quantum wave? You know, and it crashes over itself somehow, and these waves produce packets of energy, which we then call particles. And then going on from that, you've then got these built-in kind of laws or rules that determine which bits of matter stick to which other bits to make bigger bits. (laughs) So you get your atoms that, you know, come together to form molecules and then your molecules come together to form things such as the human body. But equally, the air and the space is surrounding us you know, as we as we move away from what we class as our human body, it sort of blurs into this bigger picture, doesn't it? it does. Which is also made up of atoms. You know, you know, the air around me today is made up of 
oxygen and nitrogen and yeah and then you can go back to you can go back to newton who said mm-hmm. that who said that energy isn't isn't created or destroyed and there is your evidence that the universe is one mm-hmm. interconnected if all matter is is made of energy and matter requires energy to move and act in the world then everything that exists and everything that's happening boils down to energy which can't be created or destroyed that's a no. that's a complete that's a complete isolated system it's one yes and there will be i mean we've talked before about quantum entanglement and the idea that there are certain particles that are essentially the mirror image of each other or split at some point and they're quantumly entangled and if you reverse the spin on one it reverses the spin on the other instantly not not the speed of light instant mm. The, that, that applies equally to the particles that make up myself, my body. There must be particles out there in the universe somewhere that are quantum entangled to me. I mean, it's even possible that there are particles in you that are quantum entangled with me. And when I do something, <laughs> yeah. instant, it has an effect on you. I wonder if that does account maybe sometimes for this kind of feeling of familiarity between certain people, twin flames, soulmates. Absolutely. Absolutely. I like that. So um, this idea that we are not just this, you know, this body, thankfully. I'll just read you a little bit from uh, Alan Watts again. It says, it's hard to imagine that such inert dough, (laughs) that's good, inert dough can move and form itself. Energy, form, and intelligence must therefore come into the world from outside. The lump must be leavened. Mm. Genesis, the primordial stuff without form and void, I think you mentioned this uh, in our last chat, is symbolized as water. And as water does not wave without wind, nothing can happen until the spirit of God moves upon its face. The forming and moving of matter is thus attributed to intelligent spirit, to a conscious force or energy in forming matter so that its various shapes come and go, live and die. Hmm. What do you make to that? So a couple of things come to my mind. The first thing is that water... As an image, it's something that it's something that very commonly represents the unconscious, and the, it, the reason makes perfect sense. In fact, I'll tell you a quick story. When I went on my honeymoon, I went to Jamaica, and I'd never been to the Caribbean before, so I went, I went snorkeling and over a coral reef, and um, it took some getting used to. But I I get out to the edge of the coral reef, and it just drops off. You know, yep. I can see all the colors in the fish, and then all of a sudden. Black, as far as you can see, down, 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 down. You don't even know how far down. And I was so effing scared, Daniel, because I couldn't see the bottom. I felt like I was going to fall off of the edge. And I also had these sort of strange feelings like I don't know what's down there. Anything could be down there. And so there was so much fear that came from that. So this is the connection to the unconscious. Water is this, it's like another substance, right? Like light shines through water and refracts at an angle. It's like you're going into another realm and anything, anything can be in that realm. Anything can emerge from the depths. So that's why water is, is a symbol of the unconscious. And that is, that is the substance that the Bible talks about in the beginning, right? The, the, the substance that, that the Spirit of God went across was this yes. 
water. To me, this is the unconscious. This is the primordial matrix from which being can emerge. And you and I have talked about that as, you know, maybe it's the fabric of space time. Maybe it's these quantum fields. And and that's kind of where my mind goes. It goes to these these quantum fields. To your point, who's who's doing the vibration? What is causing the vibration? But you can imagine the water moving like quantum fields would be moving in waves. What is doing the moving is is the question, right? Well, it is the question, and I think we've touched on this before. I'm of the opinion that the ocean itself, this infinite deep, as the Hindus refer to it, is both the ocean and the wave uh, the ocean and the wind so yes. the, it's it's not that you've got kind of this quantum field which is then agitated by someone on the outside the quantum field is the agitator it's yes. all combined into one and that's kind of where i go when i refer to source some would yes. say god i would say god is another layer that arises from that that becomes kind of temporarily conscious Mm. but either way we're talking about one across the board here and that is basically our nature we are waves in an ocean of which we are a drop Mm. the ocean deep the infinite deep so i've I've had an image i think a lot in images now since 2018 when i had a a mystic experience (laughs) and um, one of these images that originally it was a painting and i thought to myself what god is is the painter and the painting both at once and then yeah. later on later on that image changed to an instrument so god god is an instrument a musical instrument that plays itself right it's I both like that. right it's nice. both the player and the played yes very yes. good i like that i like that a lot that's very good that fits in with something i'm uh, going to mention later so yes i, I like this idea that um you know, at first we kind of think of ourselves as this body as we grow spiritually, whether it's through psychedelics or meditation or whatever. There comes a point for the spiritually awakened where they realize they are not just this body. There is something on the, almost on the outside working in, you know, this this I experience. And it was, um, was it Descartes? How do you say that? Descartes? Descartes? Descartes, yeah. Descartes. Cog, uh, let's see if I can get this right. Cogito ergo sum. You got it. Yes. Is that right? Yes. Therefore, I am. The the real I, the real I is an experience. It's not the body. It's not the body. Our body, as we've seen, is just a lump of clay. The real I is when, when we come into this animated consciousness, animated by what? you know, the spirit of God, whatever we want to call it. That's the eye. It's the eye. And where is this eye? This is quite interesting that it depends on your culture. Different people from different places think of the eye as residing somewhere different. Now, in, in the Western world, I don't know about yourself, but certainly for me, it feels a bit like I'm kind of, in the back of my head somewhere, looking out through my eyes. That's what it feels like, like a little guy inside kind of moving me around. Whereas the Chinese have this idea of what they call a heart mind. 
and it's in their chest. Mm. When they, if you say to them, "Where, where are, where is the eye located?" They'll say, "Here, in my chest." Did you? Did you? I don't know if you had the example. Um, the ancient Greeks believed that it was in the gut. I don't know. I don't know in the no, stomach. No, I didn't know that. No, please. Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah. So they, they believe the soul resided in the stomach, and we have we have um, like uh, residue of that in Western culture because we say we have a gut feeling that uh-huh. we, we you know we use we use certain phrases like that, and and uh, it ties back to ancient Greece where they believed the soul was in in the belly. Mm. You know, if you if you ever feel like really really bad emotional pain, it yeah. has it has physical. Uh, correlates it what causes you physical pain, and if you ask yourself where those things happen, like you know, if you're crying and you feel tightness in the back of your throat, that's one. That's one thing. You also will feel heartbreak, which feels literally like a pain in your chest. Um, so th- you know, there there are manifestations of feeling in your chest, in your belly, in your throat that are coordinated. You know, that's, in- that's interesting. That reminds me of. Um, you know the scriptures where Jesus, who is presented as a very empathic person, isn't he? Yes. In scripture, it, when he saw the leper, it says that he felt pity for the man. And that word pity in in English doesn't really carry a great connotation. It's this kind of, I feel sorry for you, you know. Right. You're a bit less than me, you need my help. That's mm. not the idea that was carried in the Hebrew word. Um, where it says Jesus felt pity, it's the word splachnia, splachnia. And it literally refers to uh, a moving of the bowels. Oh. oh. You know that You know that feeling where you just feel so, I don't want to get too crude, but you feel so emotional that you just have to have a poo. Yeah, absolutely. You know, right yeah. in your Got right in your bowels, you know, it really affects you that bad, you know. Absolutely. That, that's the idea that is carried with the idea of pity. Mm. I like that. I think that's, um, well, I don't like that, but you know, <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> Daniel, can I circle back, can I circle back to uh, cogito ergo sum for a second? Yes, please. And feel free to bring in any of these uh, thoughts you've got from your nice book as well. Hey, Hegel, yeah. So, so I, I guess what I want to ask you to do is to compare two phrases. So mm-hmm. the, the, we, we talked a little bit about the name of God and, and, and the forms in which God manifests angels and El versus Elohim and all that sort of thing. Uh, but in the Bible, God says that he is, I am, right? God mm-hmm. is the I am. Yes. So you you have the biblical way of understanding God as I am. And then you have Descartes saying, I think, therefore, I am. Mm. So dissect these two, these two phrases. I think I am is so beautiful because it because it, those two words break down the, the fundamental components of reality. If you haven't thought about it, I'll, I'll take you through. Um, I is the personal pronoun. I is consciousness. I is an ego. I is the thing that you associate with your face and your personality and your actions. And that little guy uh, looking out behind your eyes, that's the I. And then am is a reference to being, you know, am or being. Those words are so hard to define. You know, if you tried to do it, you you would busy yourself for an eternity. What is mm-hmm. what is 
being mean? What does am mean? You know, it, it means to exist. It means it has a particular type of reality. So I am to me means consciousness and being. And those two things, being to me is the, the material cosmos. It's what we're consciously aware of and consciousness, right? On the other side, I think that those things are one thing, just like we talked about the instrument playing itself. I am is consciousness and being together. That's what they are. One thing. What are your thoughts on that? I, I, I think that's excellent. When we get to the idea of being dead, just to come back to that later. That almost seems like a contradiction. How mm. can I am the I am not? It's not possible. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it, 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 it carries to me the idea, not just that I am as in I exist, but the idea that I must exist. Mm. Yes. I must exist. There's, there's yes. no option, you know, and yes. I cannot not exist. <laughs> Now, if you if you fast forward several thousand years to get to Rene Descartes, hmm. he says, "I think, therefore, I am." He's making it conditional. He's saying that you that you don't am unless you think. Good, right? Yes. So there is no being without thinking, and it's difficult to know, know whether by that he means consciousness or whether he means well, like what Bernardo Castro would call mentation. Is, is it just the mental or the, the, the spiritual or mental essence or existence, whatever that is? It's a, it's a mystery. We don't know. So I don't know. What do you, what do you think of that? Well, I, I think coming back, bringing in the idea of God for a moment, just to sort of revert back to that basic term, God. We think of God as eternal. And if God is eternal, God forever thought. I think that's the idea. I know there's a lot of contradictions in that because Thinking tends to imply one thought after another, which tends to be a temporal experience. Mm. But it, it kind of means to me that it's not possible for there not to be mind. It's not possible for there not to be conscious thought. Thought must exist. That must be the very, the very foundation, the, the most fundamental level of what is, is consciousness which comes into, I suppose we're touching on panpsychism again, aren't we? Well, you know, if, if we, we talked about I am being the, the name of God. And if you insert that, if you insert that into Descartes, it's, I think, therefore, God. God. Yes, very good. I think, therefore, God. There's a connection between our ability to think, which is a capacity we would call consciousness, and mm. God itself. Amazing. Okay, so I want to just move this on a little bit along the lines of where we stand looking at things and analysing things is a little bit like looking through a letterbox or a keyhole even. You're really only seeing part of the bigger picture. Alan Watts used a brilliant illustration of a picket fence, you know, with gaps in between the boards and a black cat walking behind the picket fence. So what you're seeing, if you were to look at any one of those gaps, you would see a head followed by a body, followed by a tail. Now, as 
as we are familiar with cats, we would go, oh, it's a cat. We would put those three things together, head, body, tail, and our mind would con- construct that as a, a singular image. Yes? Right. But if we were not familiar with, if, if this was the first time ever we'd been introduced to picket fences and cats and reality as it was, it might be that we would think that a head causes a body which causes a tail and that these are three separate three separate things that all, always follow each other. Whenever you see a cat's head, very soon you'll see a, see a cat's tail and you may not put together the fact that these things are actually interconnected. Now, just taking that, I think the purpose of the illustration there is that we look at what we call reality and we see all these bits, don't we? We see you, we see me, we see you know the sun, we see the earth, we see the universe, we see trees, flowers, and we tend to think of everything as separate. And quite often we think of certain things as causes, don't we? We see clouds, then we see rain, mm. and we think, well, the rain came from the clouds. Right. On a bigger picture, he's trying to get across this idea that, Everything isn't bits and pieces that are all kind of interacting with each, each other. This is just one big thing at the end of the day. I suppose right. we would go back to calling it God or source or the field or whatever. Let me just read this, um, read this quote for you. It says, what guarantee is there that the five senses taken together do cover the whole of possible experience? They cover simply our actual experience, our human knowledge of facts or events. There are gaps between the fingers. There are gaps between the senses. In these gaps is a darkness which hides the connection between things. Mm. This darkness is the source of our vague fears and anxieties, but also the home of the gods. They alone see the connections, the total relevance of everything that happens, that which now comes to us in bits and pieces, the accidents which exist only in our heads, in our limited perceptions. That's a quote by uh, Idris Parry from Kafka, uh, Reich and Rumpelstiltskin. He just concludes, failure to see that individual people, nations, animals, instincts and plants do not exist in or by themselves. This is not to say only that things exist in relation to each other, but that what we call things are no more than a glimpse of a unified process. Mm. If you were stood behind a door and I couldn't see you and you waved, you put your hand out and waved and I saw your hand, I might well say, oh, it's Chris, if I happen to recognise your hand. But it's not Chris, it's Chris's hand. Mm. Yeah? Yes. Yes. When we see a tree or another person or a flower or a rock, it's completely conceivable to say, oh, it's God. It's not God, not in his entirety, but it, yes. but it is very much God. Mm. Can yes. you unravel that for me? Oh, boy. Uh, where to begin? Uh, well, first of all, I wanted to tell you I encountered that story of the cat behind the fence for the first time right literally a couple of days ago i didn't realize it was watts but i did hear it wow uh, 
So it's interesting. It's like if you saw a cat walking up and down a fence um, and you didn't know what you were looking at, you would assume that the head causes the tail. And I think that I think that shines a light on the mystery of perception like that. It, it, to Alan's point, that's exactly what our what our life's like. Uh, we don't see the complete picture. We don't see reality as it actually is. And in fact, if we did, we probably wouldn't be able to function. Um, we'd just we'd just die. I mean, evolution Not as a human, we couldn't. Yeah, that's it. Exactly. Yeah. So cause and effect is interesting um, it, because we do believe that the world functions that way mechanically. Mechanically, that's that's how we imagine it's cause and effect, like a like a giant mechanism. And when I was reading um, David Chalmers, I think it was David Chalmers. It might have been Peter Shurston Hughes. They were talking about how cause and effect is really a mystery to the same level as consciousness is a mystery. We can't say that consciousness supervenes on on the physical laws. We can't say that consciousness depends on the physical laws because you can know all the formulas and math behind physics and you can't use that math to arrive at consciousness. There's only one other thing that they pointed to that's like that and it's cause and effect. Hmm. Cause and, and it sounds strange because like I, I would imagine if I roll a billiard ball down a table and it knocks into another billiard ball that that's cause and effect. And then there's physics that can describe what's happening. And both of those great philosophers say, no, that's, an, that's, that's not quite right. Uh, cause and effect is a mystery. We don't, we don't exactly know why one billiard ball hitting another one causes it to do what it does. We don't know why cause and effect exists at all. And it, it, you can't come to that conclusion by studying the, the math behind the physical world. That's good because it, it comes down to it's not just that I am everything. It's that all of my actions are interrelated with every other action. Everything I do has an effect on everything mm, in the universe. Yes. It's yes. the old illustration of the uh, if a butterfly flaps its wings, mm -hmm. isn't it? Yes. You know, it may cause a typhoon or something in Japan. Yeah, so that, that that reminds me that chaos theory that that reminds me of it reminds me of a guy named Alfred North Whitehead. Uh, he's he's a philosopher who he's known for being what's called a process philosopher or or process metaphysics, which which basically means if you can imagine God or you can imagine nature, however you want to look at it, um, not as a being but as a process, and he called yes. it. He, yeah. he, he called it the philosophy of organism. And I, and I don't exactly know what he means by that, but I'll tell you what I think he might mean by that. It, it goes back to this fractal, fractal underpinning of, of reality is that let's just say I'm an organism and I live, I exist in, well, here, let, let me do my body rather than going a uh, scale up, uh, scale down. So yeah, so you can see that my, my my organs, let's say, in my body are composed of these little cells that are doing what they're doing and are unaware of me at all. And those cells are made up of um, chemicals that are doing what they're doing with no idea what the cells themselves are doing. And they're made of atoms that are doing the same thing and have no idea what these scales up are, are, are up to. Um, we're, we're organisms within organisms within organisms. Yes. And you might take that up. A scale also and say that Daniel and Chris are organisms existing within this uh, organism we call Earth. 
Very and much. We're doing our doing our little job, whatever our job is. Whatever our job is unaware mm. of what the higher levels are doing. It's yeah. like uh, it reminds me of like a colony of bees or a colony of ants that are that are a hive mind. You know, it's like the ants might have some consciousness or some experience. But they're not acting for themselves. They're acting as a part of a greater organism. And that's where this idea of process makes a lot of sense to me. It's like everything interacts with everything else and it scales up and down maybe infinitely. I don't know. I think what you've just described there is or what you've defined there is being. Mm. We talked about I am really means being. It's not just about existing. Being isn't just about existing. It's about doing something. Mm. You know, the full, the full force of being, it's a creative force, isn't it? You know, and that often, that often comes into the idea of I am. It's a creative force. I actually, years ago, I coined the phrase, I create, therefore I am. I used that as a little slogan for one of my design companies. I am is all about process is about actions and nothing ever stays still really in the universe does it i mean i i feel i don't know if i can explain this but i almost feel like my physical body is not confined to just these borders of where my skin ends and the outside begins but my entire body which is controlled by my brain by whatever this i am is on the inside or outside i feel like this body is actually connected to the entire universe, almost by like quantum strings, if you will, a bit like a puppet. Yes. As I move and act and decide, you know, make make decisions and what have you, it does have an actual effect on the universe itself, which kind of takes you down the, the idea of manifesting, doesn't it? The idea that you can actually make mountains move. I think that the borders between you and I, as an example, yeah. And this is this is strange. It, it may work a little better if I tell you about the way I think about my children. So I've, I've got two young girls and they're um, they're not they're not disciplined. Right. They're young and they're wild. They're not disciplined. So I have to discipline them because they can't do it themselves yet. So I have to I have to do the disciplining and I show them the, the example like, you know, here's what you're doing. Here's what you're doing wrong. Here's what you need to know. This, this is how you fix it. And then I what I do is I reinforce that. Until they can do it themselves. Yeah, and they're I, wonderfully unaware of self at that age, aren't they? They are, yes. Mm. But then I, step, but then I step back and I think of what this might this might fit into our death conversation in a little bit. But I think about when I'm gone, when I'm dead. Mm. I, my girls are going to have their discipline, and there's a way in which there's a little voice in their consciousness that is me. That's telling them, you don't do this. Here's why. This is how you control yourself. This is what you should be doing. They're going to keep that with them forever, not realizing that it's not them, that I put it there, that it's me. I'm I'm there. I survive after death. And people say that, you know, as a platitude, you know, you, that your loved ones are always going to be with you even after they die. They're looking down on you from heaven. No, they're in your psyche. They, the people It's who very make, real. Yes. Very, very real. And Daniel, I want to say... Mm. I think that you and I are connected in, in, in a similar way. I, I don't think that your borders or my borders stop you no. know, at our skin because we've had enough conversations and I have enough insight shared between the two of us that you carry a little piece of me and I carry a little piece yeah, of you. Yeah, there's a, there's a blending going on, isn't there? Yes. yes. Yeah, 
very much so. Um, I like that. Let me just read another little quote then that ties in with that. It says, uh, the cat has been let out of the bag, <laughs> literally. The inside information is that yourself, as just little me, who came into this world and lives temporarily in a bag of skin, is a hoax and a fake. The fact is, no one thing or feature of this universe is separable from the whole. The only real you or self is the whole. The individual may be understood neither as an isolated person nor as an expendable humanoid working machine. He may be seen instead as one particular focal point at which the whole universe expresses itself as an incarnation of the self, of the Godhead, or whatever one may choose to call it. Hmm. I think that sums it up well, doesn't it? I love it. I got, I got, I got nothing to add to that, Daniel. That's perfect. That's, that's excellent. You talked about consciousness as being creative. Hmm. And there's something that I read in Carl Jung uh, recently that I thought was pretty interesting. It goes along those lines, and it goes something like this. The very first, first creative act was the creation of the ego. It was the separation from source into an yeah. independent self. We created ourselves. So, and, and when I say that, I, what I mean is consciousness. So when we say consciousness is a creative, a creative force, I think it's important to recognize that the, the first thing that was created by it was, well, you, you know, it's, yeah. it's, Again, when consciousness very much what I've this last few weeks after we had that discussion about God behind the God, I've kind of gone down this route that there is source, and then the very first creative act, like you say, is mind. And I would call mind well, I'd call it two things first of all, I'd call it us, second Mm. of all, I would call it God. Yes, yes, yes. I'm with you, man. I'm with you. I'm slowly, I'm slowly starting to piece these things together. You know, last week I was told that I think too much. Yeah. I overthink. This Hmm. week someone told me I'm shallow. No. I'm shallow and I don't think enough. There's another paradox. (laughs) So I'm like, oh, okay. It was quite interesting conversation, actually. They told me, you know, without any sort of knowledge of who I am or what my background is, they told me to go back to the Bible. I think you read it, actually, in one of your tweets. Go back to the Bible and prove to yourself that. And then they just sort of repeated a load of things that they believe. I, I can just see it now that people often start out with a bias where they believe something and then they prove it to themselves. Oh, yeah. Whereas that's not how it should work. What you should do is go into this with an open mind, searching, and when things present themselves, you go, ah, got it, you know. And that is very much my thought process at the moment. I'm kind of approaching a lot of these things completely open to other inputs yourself. I've got another good friend that is a very deep thinker as well and um, slowly these things drip into my brain like you were saying, you know. And then they become part of me, and I go, ah, got it. Yes. When you get those sort of interactions with people, um, especially online, how how personally do you take it? Um, That's an interesting question. I used to take it very personally, and I used to be quite sensitive and get quite upset, actually. 
And there's an old phrase, praise and blame, it's all the same. Mm. Uh, I think Abraham, was it Abraham Lincoln, I think, said, um, you know, if, if I'm right, I'm right. But if I'm wrong, a thousand angels telling me I'm right won't make any difference. And I kind of got this, I, I, I sort of realized that it is just an opinion, you know, like I say, someone last week said I think too much. Someone this week says I don't think at all. <laughs> Neither of those things may be true or they might, might both be. Sometimes I might think too much. Other times I might not think enough. Yeah. I, I, uh, I try not. What about yourself when you get? Yeah. I mean, the, it? the reason I asked you is because I struggle with that because I've been struggling mm-hmm. with that myself. So like, I'll give you an, I don't get like a lot of negative um, comments, but I had one um, and it was a, you know what? I was going back and forth with a guy on Twitter and it seemed like it was a nice conversation getting started. And then I got blocked. He blocked me and, uh, and he said something nasty. And then, and then I just, you know, it bothered me for like 24 hours bothered me. Yeah. So I was like, I gotta, I gotta stop putting so much, uh, you know, um, I gotta stop caring so much. I think, I think the way I, um, well, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know as you do need to stop caring so much. I think the fact that you are passionate about what you feel and believe and excited about it, mm-hmm. I think that's why, why sometimes it hurts so much. You know, if I, just, if, I, if I just parrot what somebody else says, you know, um, if I'm part of a religion and I've got this religious doctrine, uh, creed, or whatever you call it, dogma, uh, and I repeat that, you know, this is what I believe because so-and-so told me to. And someone turns around and says, all your beliefs are stupid. I don't feel so bad because he's not really part of me. It's just someone else told me this. But when I've sat there and thought these things through and really made them myself, and then someone says, that's stupid, that does hurt because you think, hold on a bit. What I actually do now is when I get a negative comment, on Twitter or whatever, first of all, I tell them, I step back a bit. First of all, I tell myself they don't know me. They are just seeing a little glimpse through 180 character long tweet or whatever it is. Mm. They don't know that I've read my Bible three times through or have worked through this a million different ways, you know, and tried on every, every possible belief before I've come to this conclusion. They don't know that, do they? Um, so what I tend to do is I normally wait for about an hour or so just to let the sting subside. And then I come back with something witty. I think this person said, you need to think outside the box like me. And I, I, I waited for an hour and then I came back with, there is no box. <laughs> oh dear. It's probably lost on some people, but there we go. Can I move you uh, into a new heading? Um, I and the universe. So if we start thinking more about the universe. Um, Parts are fictions of language of the calculus of looking at the world through a net, which seems to chop it up into bits. So if you take uh, the entire universe, if that was possible, or even a section of it, and then split it up into grids, and then just look at a small grid... That's kind of what we see when we look at things. Reality is not real. Fictions, Alan Watts says, are useful. They're useful as a kind of way of communicating ideas, as long as they are taken as fictions. They are just ways of figuring the world so that we can agree 
so that we can act in cooperation as we agree about things like inches and hours, numbers and words, mathematical systems and languages. If we have no agreement about measures of time and space, I would have no way of making a date with you at the corner of 42nd Street and 5th Avenue at 3pm on Sunday, April the 4th. But the troubles begin when the fictions are taken as facts. Thus, in 1752, the British government, (laughs) we instituted a calendar reform which required that September the 2nd of that year be dated September the 14th with the result that many people imagined that 11 days had been taken off their lives. (laughs) That's good, isn't it? Um, He continues, for every individual, there is a unique manifestation of the whole, as every branch is a particular outreaching of the tree. Every branch must have a sensitive connection with the tree, just as our independently moving and differentiated fingers must have a sensitive connection with the whole body. The point, which can hardly be repeated too often, is that differentiation is not separation. Come back to that in a moment. Differentiation is not separation. The head and the feet are different but not separate. And though man is not connected to the universe by exactly the same physical relation as, say, a branch to a tree or a foot to a head, he is nonetheless connected and by physical relations of fascinating complexity. We've discussed before that creation is the act of separation, disassociation, I think is the word we've used before. Light from dark, sea from land, water from water, animals from the land, and so forth. But I thought that was an interesting point. Differentiation is not separation. Yes. We don't don't break away from something and then there is no connection anymore any more than a branch on a tree that grows stops mm. becoming the tree. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think what comes to my mind is words like, like unconscious. So we have, mm. we have conscious part of ourselves. Um, we don't have access to it. That's why we call it unconscious, but it exists. It influences us, you know, in the here and now. Yeah. Um, so you have an, an estrangement from part of yourself and it feels as though you're separate, distinct, but you aren't. And you know you aren't when you think about your unconscious because it affects you exclusively and it's a part of you exclusively. So I, I think I think the idea of estrangement or or, or dissociation is better than, than the word separation because that implies mm, yes. multiple beings. Uh, yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. That's good. That 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 is good. Yeah. Is have you ever had that? Um, you must have had this before. That that situation where you've slept on your arm, and you wake up and you can't feel it. <laughs> it's still part of you, isn't it? But it's quite a weird feeling, isn't it? You sort of look at it. It feels like it almost feels like a separate entity. Yep. Yeah. There's there's a, a story that I heard, and I can't remember the context, but there's a condition that I don't know if it's I don't know the, the source of it, but we're people feel like their limbs don't belong to them. And it just sounds strange, but they'll wake up, they'll wake up and grab their leg and throw it out of the bed and then wake up and and they pick themselves up off the floor. They don't understand why. That that must be awful. There's actually, that reminds me actually of, there's a book called Phantoms in the Brain. Yes. Um, That is, that is an absolutely awesome book. It, is by a Dr. Ramakandran, I think he is, an Indian doctor. And it's about, basically, he he tries to explain that we've got a map in our brain of where all our body parts are. 
So we can always sort of feel where they are. Mm-hmm. And if you have a very sudden amputation, this is normally people that have had a traumatic amputation as opposed to a surgical one. Their brain has, doesn't have time to update the fact that their leg is no longer there. Mm. And they go through some terrible ordeals, some of these people, feeling like their limbs are still there, phantom limbs are still there, because they've still got this map of where they end. Mm. But now they don't end. You know, they've got no legs or whatever. <laughs> I think that's, that's fascinating to me. Yeah, absolutely. Have you got any um, – that might be a good time, actually, just to pull in uh, any thoughts you've got on your, your book? Yes. Is there anything yes. that – you really wanted to share with us. I, yeah, absolutely. So um, Friedrich Hegel, in his mm. Phenomenology of Spirit, he talks about, first of all, you have to understand that spirit and psyche um, are all, they, they're synonyms, spirit and psyche, and they have different connotations in the modern world. We think of spirit as religious and psyche as scientific, but we're talking about the same thing. And so Phenomenology of Spirit reads like an academic work of philosophy, but to me, it sounds like it's an exploration of self-consciousness, what it is to be a human being. But to me, it sounds like the relationship between man and God. So um, there's a bit here in the beginning where he says, he says, self-consciousness has before it another self-consciousness. And what he means by this seems to be, it's really difficult, but I'll try. Self-consciousness yeah, self-consciousness, another self-consciousness has before itself another self. So imagine you're looking in a mirror, right? Self-consciousness has before itself another self-consciousness. And, and this, this is what I gather that it means. So you tell me what you think of this. There's a way that we look at ourselves or experience ourselves as a subject. And that's like the guy looking out from my eyes. I'm in charge of the story. I'm the, I am I am the leading role in the story of Chris. So I'm subject, but I'm also an object. I'm a body. I'm a person. So the, the way in which we see ourselves as an object is not the same as the way we see ourselves as a subject. We see ourselves as a subject coming outside of ourselves to look down at the object of our, that is ourself. So when he says our self-consciousness has before itself another self-consciousness, I'm arguing that that's how we experience our lives, as though we're two distinct things, yes. self-subject and that's object. Where, that's why we refer to my hand, my yes. foot. Exactly. My head. Yes. Yes. Later on in the book, Hegel talks about these two consciousnesses differently. and He calls one the master and one the bondsman. And what he means by that is that the, the bondsman needs the master and the master needs the bondsman, but there's, they're not equals. The subject is in charge. The subject is not on par with the object. The subject is something higher. And so I imagine the master consciousness as God and the servant or bondsman consciousness as me. And Hegel makes the argument that they're both me. And guess what? I agree. I agree that they're both me. Um, I don't think Hegel means by master consciousness, God. I think he means something like what Jung would call the higher self versus your ego or something like that. But I I think it speaks better in a a religious perspective, the master being God and the bondsman being material reality. I, that, that reminds me of an illustration 
I was using with uh, Mariella, my uh, girlfriend. Hello, Mariella. <laughs> um, this week, if you imagine God or source even, either way, as uh, a glass of water that is constantly feeding other smaller glasses of water. Yeah. And that's kind of almost like there is only one consciousness. There is only one water. But yes. it's being it, it's being experienced through all of these different vessels, as you will. And what I learn in this body, the experience I have, it does feel very much like I'm an individual, but it, I'm not really. It's kind of I am and I'm not at the same time, isn't it? And I'm gaining this experience and this knowledge and what have you, so are you. But ultimately, that is all going back to the same glass of water. Mm. And you could all, almost say that it's it's kind of being recycled all the time. And I suppose this comes back to the idea that what you were saying about your children, there's elements of you, not not just biologically, but also mentally that are within your children. Yes. And realistically, depending on how much of an impact you have on people, could still be here in hundreds, thousands of years' time. And I think this is why sometimes we get people that get these very strong feelings of past lives mm. and deja vu and that kind of thing. It's because it is this constant flow of consciousness that's going in and out of all of us. And um, we're just well, picking up sometimes on somebody else's experience. I agree uh, wholeheartedly. I want to point out the image you bring up of uh, a reservoir of water feeding mm. uh, into others and then recycling back into itself. What, what you have there is an illustration of preservation of energy, right? You have preservation right. of the system is self-contained and that doesn't go. Yep. Um, you also have the unity. You understand the parts of the whole there, um, but you also have a process. So I want to point that out. You have a process that goes from the reservoir to the individual cups back to the reservoir. And we talked about process earlier about, about God or, or nature maybe being something like a process. And the thing I want to point out is the process requires the reservoir and the cups. Yes, process isn't does can't exist no. without both. And so, for, for the purposes of making the analogy plain, the reservoir is God, and the cups are individual mm -hmm. con conscious beings. And just just take that one step further as well. If you imagine that the, the the water goes from the reservoir to the cups, it also interchanges between the cups. Oh um, yes. I know we've discussed before about things like divine sex. When when two people have sexual intercourse, that is very much a way of two people becoming one, mm. and it's it is actually a biological function, isn't isn't it? You know, there are actually atoms, <laughs> for want of a better word, being being shared between the two of you. You know, even more so if that ends up in a pregnancy. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, but there's also this, and I don't know if you've ever thought about it like this before. This might put you off. Um, Sharing thoughts is almost like a mentor intercourse. Um, you are actually sharing conscious ideas between each other, and they do stick, don't Absolutely. they? You do, Absolutely. as you have a you know you have a friend, someone that you share your most intimate and deep thoughts with. Over time, you kind of become almost see things from the other person's perspective, don't you? And sometimes you even find that you start acting like them. You know, you, you, you end up sort of repeating 
uh, or, or finishing the sentences of the other person even before they yeah they finish. You know, if you ask if you ask yourself what friendship is, and and mm-hmm. you can you can say the same thing about a romantic relationship like you just did. But if you ask yourself what friendship really is, I think it it is coming to identify with another human being. So yeah. it's like when you say, you you know, I, I have a little bit of you and me and you have a little bit of me and you, I think it's, it's more of a shared identity. You know, when you become friends, it's something like that that's happening where I, yeah. I don't. And I, don't and I think that is, that is why I so much more think that that is so much a better way than this kind of uh, religious approach that some people have where they've, they've kind of written up a list of what you should think and believe. And then it's kind of a memo that is handed around, you know, the however many million followers, and they all they all go, all right, we believe that now. It's lifeless. Um, it's lifeless. It is. It is lifeless. It's got no passion or or anything behind it, has it? Really? Right. So, um, so uh, that ties in with a couple of thoughts here. Just as no thing or organism exists on its own, uh, it does not act on its own. Little illustration here for you. One could say that if the sun, the sun and a body of moisture were in the right relationship, say over an ocean, any observer on a ship that sailed into that would see a rainbow. Okay. So we've got sun, moisture, ocean, observers, ship, rainbow. Okay. But one could also say that if an observer and the sun the observer and the sun were correctly aligned, there would be a rainbow if there were moisture in the air. Mm-hmm. Perhaps we can accept this reasoning without too much struggle when it concerns things like rainbows and reflections, whose reality status was never too high. But what if it dawns on us that our perception of rocks, mountains and stars, other people, is a situation of just the same kind? It's just too much of a shock, too fast a switch to recognise this little germ with its fabulous brain is evoking the whole thing, including the nebulae millions of light years away. That's good, isn't it? <laughs> I know we've talked about the serendipitousness, is that a word, of us kind of meeting each other, mm-hmm. similar with Mariella, where we just sort of fell into each other's lives at some point. Right. And it, it does just feel sometimes that things are aligned aren't they like the sun and you know the 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 moisture in the air the ship and you get the rainbow and it it just it just quite i question that and wonder was it me that found mariella or did mariella find me did you attract me into your life or did i attract you or are we just quantumly entangled or what you know what's going on here (laughs) there's these connections isn't there yes and it's it's almost like they were always meant to be. Mm. It was just a matter of time before this particular connection came up. So that, that reminds me of this idea of synchronicity. Um, mm. And we talked about organism earlier and, and like understanding reality to be um, a, uh, a web of different scales, kind of up and down. And synchronicity is something that's explained as patterns at these different levels lining yeah. up. And when they do, you have some amazing, um, you know, experience or some, you know, uh, some synchronicity. Um, I think that probably it's something like that. There's patterns, some patterns of, of 
you know, I, 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 I'm not the guy to explain it, but some patterns that you and I and maybe Marielle share that coincided, you know, and we're lucky enough to recognize it and form a relationship. And, and that's great. I don't know that we always do. I don't know that we always recognize it, but I'm happy that we did, man. Yeah, very much. It comes back to that reservoir of consciousness that's feeding into the, the individual glasses, isn't it? And somewhere along the line, there's been a swapping of ideas. Douglas E. Harding pointed out, we tend to think of this planet as a life-infested rock, which is as absurd as thinking of the human body as a cell-infested skeleton. Surely all forms of life, including man, must be understood as symptoms of the Earth, the solar system and the galaxy, in which case we cannot escape the conclusion that the galaxy is intelligent. I, the individual organism, am a structure of such fabulous ingenuity that it calls the whole universe into being. I love that. We are basically symptoms of a much bigger consciousness. Yeah. And even the galaxy itself that is producing these things, you know, producing our bodies, is itself intelligent. There's intelligence behind the whole thing, isn't there? So I don't tend to think of it as I decided to contact Mariella or you decided to contact me. I think you are me, I am you, I am Mariella. And this is this is just a wonderful dance of a single intelligence bringing the pieces together to form what we think of as our little our little corner of reality, isn't it? And that is going on with billions of connections all around the world with different people. I love that. And I want to point out that the analogy of a dance goes right back to the process that we've been talking about. A dance is just like that. It's a back and forth. It's a process. That's it. So when you when you finally sort of realize this, this idea that the ego, you know, the self is um, it is a fiction. You are the process. You are the pattern of life, so to speak. The the experience and the experiencer, the knower and the one knowing. Have you ever heard of the um, Japanese yujin? Uh, no, I don't think so. It's one of those words. It's one of those words that there are. You have to be Japanese to understand it. It's like um, there's an Inuit word, I believe, that means it means I like you, but not enough to share an igloo with you. It's a very specific word, yujin. It literally means dark or obscure, but it doesn't really translate into English. The best way I can describe it is it means beauty that is only partially perceived, fully felt, but barely mm. glimpsed by the mm. viewer. I like that. Yeah. That's yeah. good, isn't it? You know, the word intuition comes to mind. when It's something that's mm. more, it's more felt than like explicitly known. I, I call that that's intuition. It. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and trying to put that, I, th- I think you and I manage very well because because we there, there is this sort of melding of minds, uh, and and we kind of know what we mean, but to put things into words sometimes for me is the hardest thing possible. Yes, I, you know, I'm I'm probably what I'm trying to explain in words is just ten percent of what I actually mm. am perceiving here. You know, it's funny. I'm trying to remember. There's a there's a quote. Um, I can't remember. The gist of it is basically that if you're a prophet, um, the mm. message that you bring to your people won't be accepted. 
You have to take it to somebody else. And yeah. that's that's how I felt when I had my enlightenment. And I was like, I want to I've learned the most important thing I've ever learned. And I want to tell the people I love the most. So I tell my mom, I tell my dad, I tell my sister, I tell my wife. All of them are like, this guy is crazy. Then you and I get together from from, you know, across the pond and we're simpatico. It's it's just one of those things. It's um, I, I agree with that. I, I actually did a podcast uh, the other day, episode sixty six, I think it was called um, "The Serpent Awakens," and I actually mentioned about how Jesus, after he was anointed and the Spirit settled on him, and then he started teaching people many things. Even his family tried to lay hold of him and put him in a psych ward. Effectively, I said he's he's lost his mind. He's gone crazy. We don't recognize this guy anymore. And there's there's actually even a huge overlap between some mental illness symptoms and spiritual enlightenment. When when you're going through that process, you know, people from the outside can be looking at you thinking he needs locking up. But it's not mental illness. Well, you think about it. If, if you saw vision, spiritual vision, and mm-hmm. heard the voice of God, you could look at that through the lens of a physician and say, you know, he's he's hearing disembodied voices. He's seeing visual hallucinations. You know, this person is needs is is sick. This person is sick. You know, yeah. and it could be, could be. I think um, you know, without sort of wanting to decry every belief they've got, I think the seventh. Day Adventist or the Adventist movement. Was it Ellen White? I think. Yes. Yes. She got her visions after a bump to the head. Hmm. Mm. That, that makes me think. Mm. <laughs> 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 Maybe we should have got checked out before starting a new religion, which then eventually morphed into uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. <laughs> it's like oh. <laughs> it all sort of stems back to a bump to the head. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I don't remember who it was because um, because I'm not good with Russian names. It may, maybe Dostoevsky or um, the other one doesn't even come to my mind. One of those authors, I can't remember, had a, um, a head injury. And hmm. prior to the head injury, they were trying to publish and couldn't publish. The, the writing wasn't good. But after an injury, uh, a traumatic brain injury of some kind, became one of the most well-known uh, authors of of all time. I, it yeah. might have been Dostoevsky. I can't quite remember. <laughs> that reminds me of um, when I was a uh, Jehovah's Witness, we used to have this like periodical magazine called the Awake magazine, ironically. <laughs> Awake, <laughs> when you're fast asleep spiritually. But yeah, it was called Awake, and there's a little bit in the back where it used to sort of give these uh, little sort of news stories that might be interesting to people. And there was one account of a guy that had, um, he was really depressed, like seriously depressed, and none of the doctors had been able to fix him. And he decided to end his life. He was that depressed. So he took a, took a gun, put it to his head, and it just so happens he blew out the bit of his brain that was the problem. Oh, he survived? He not only survived, he was, he was perfectly fine afterwards. Oh. And the article just at the end of it, it said, uh, oh, we don't recommend this as a, <laughs> oh. as a solution for illness. Yeah, yeah. Oh. That's good. Okay, so um, let's use our last half hour on um, the idea of I am not. 
the universe without I. I'll read you a little quote to start off. It says, uh, the whole field of vision out there in front is a sensation in the lower back of your head where the optical centers of the brain are located. What you see out there immediately, how the inside of your head looks or feels, is immediately how the inside of your head looks or feels. So too, everything that you hear, touch, taste and smell is just some kind of vibration interacting with your brain, which translates that vibration into what you know as light, colour, sound, hardness, roughness, saltiness, heaviness or pungence. Apart from your brain, all these vibrations would be like the sound of one hand clapping or of sticks playing on a skinless drum. Apart from your brain or some brain, uh, the world is devoid of light, heat, weight, solidity, motion, space, time, or any other imaginable feature. All these phenomena are interactions or transactions of vibrations with a certain arrangement of neurons. Thus, vibrations of light and heat from the sun do not actually become light or heat until they interact with a living organism, just as no light beams are visible in space unless reflected by particles of atmosphere or dust. In other words... It takes two to make anything happen. I wonder whether your uh, phenomenalism <laughs> makes any similar comments on that. Yeah, phenomenology of spirit, absolutely, uh, absolutely. So, um, word of yeah. the week. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I guess there's a um, an idea of uh, relatedness that is fundamental to our experience, fundamental to being. It's like if I had to describe myself but there was nothing but myself. I have no, I can't compare and contrast. So how can I tell you I'm so tall? There's nothing to compare how tall I am to anything else. The color of my, nope, there's, not, there's no other colors you can't compare to. So even to describe where I am or how I exist, there's nothing to point to to say it's like this or not like that. So everything we understand about existence relies on relatedness and, and opposition. So if all you had was a single ball, and we'll, we'll say that we place it in space, just, just for want of argument, and that ball was moving, there would be no way to say it was moving. Correct. Yeah? You introduce two balls, and one of the balls moves away from the other ball, you've still got a problem because you can see that the space between is increasing but which of the balls is moving? You still don't know, do you? No. So you introduce a third, and then you can say, well, this ball is moving away from the other two, but it might be that the other two are moving in conjunction with each other away from the first. Yes. And on it goes. On it goes. Everything is related to essentially everything else, isn't it? Without, as it says, it takes two to make anything happen, or I would say more than two, probably three or four for anything mm -hmm. meaningful to actually happen. I would agree. I would agree. I think you don't get the level of complexity that we see in the world without nearly infinite variables. I just think that infinite variables exist within the, the one, within source. I do have some things I want to say on the topic of not being. I am not. This idea of I am or I am not, you, you know, you can't understand both of those things um, without a paradox. To say that I am 
uh, implies being. It implies existence, a certain type of existence. To say I am not is to say, you know, I'm not being. And we don't know anything but being. So we, I don't know that we have any way of understanding what not being means. But I think that there is a path to understanding it, maybe not explicitly. I'll just kick off with a quotation from Alan Watts again. It says, does this force us to the highly implausible conclusion that before the first living organism came into being equipped with a brain, there was no universe, but the organic and inorganic phenomena came into existence at the same temporal moment? Is it possible that all geological and astronomical history is a mere extrapolation, that it is talking about what would have happened if it had been observed, perhaps? But I will venture a more cautious idea. The fact that every organism evokes its own environment must be corrected with the polar or opposite fact that the total environment evokes the organism. Furthermore, the total environment or situation is both spatial and temporal both larger and longer than the organisms contained in its field. The organism evokes knowledge of a past before it began and of a future beyond its death. At the other pole, the universe would not have started or manifested itself unless it was at some time going to include organisms, just as current will not begin to flow from the positive end of a wire until the negative terminal is secure. The principle is the same, whether it takes the universe billions of years to polarize itself in the organism, or whether it takes the current one second to traverse a wire 186,000 miles long. Hmm. I butchered that, but I think the idea it's trying to put across here is there's this relationship between us perceiving the universe and the universe itself existing. If we weren't there to perceive it, there would be no universe. But because there is a universe, we exist. Does that? Yeah. I, I, well, there's a couple of things. <laughs> <laughs> there's a couple of things that come to mind, and one of them we've talked about before, which is this physics idea that goes back to the early days of quantum physics. It's called wave function collapse, and the idea is that is this is what this is what you guys may remember Einstein made he made a lot of like little snarky comments between him and Niels Bohr in the 30s and 40s and 50s they were going going back and forth at each other and one of the things that he said to Niels Bohr was what does the moon disappear when i'm not looking at it that was one of his snarky remarks because what Niels Bohr was saying is that the physical object exists only upon measurement only upon observation in your head Exactly in your head. That's where you're making the observation. So, so if you aren't observing this, the moon, is it really there? And and the, so the idea is that you've got this quantum um, field of probabilities or potential, and with the interaction of that potential and consciousness, we call that an observation or an experience, whatever you want to call it, a measurement. Um, that creates the physical reality. So the quantum field becomes a particle. The moon, when you're not when you're not looking at it, is a potential, and when you look at it, it collapses down into a solid object. And you might ask yourself, well, how could that possibly be? If we all covered our eyes, the moon wouldn't disappear, would it? And I think that this goes back to the, the notion that if you're if you're a panpsychist or an idealist and you believe that everything is conscious, then there's never a time when you're when things aren't being observed. 
right? Every oh, time that's good. Yeah. Every time, every time a particle bumps into a particle or a wave interacts with a wave or a human being touches something, anytime anything happens, there's an observation, there's an experience. So the physical is a continual manifestation of, uh, it's an, it's an illusion, but it's a continual manifestation of that process. There's always an observer. There's always an observer. So that, that, I mean, it, it's been done to death, but the uh, the older adage of uh, the tree that falls in the forest, if there's no one there, does it make a sound? It doesn't insofar as our definition of sound, as in what we would consider a sound mm-hmm. being through our ears and in the back of our head. Right. But the potential for sound is still there because yes. there are the, well, in that, in that instance, it would be uh, waves through the air. That's all it is at that point. It's not. It's not a you know a sound, a C major, whatever noise it makes. I had an idea some years back that was. I'll send you the article actually. Brilliant article about string theory. But at the time, I'd not read the article. I, I sort of came up with this idea, and then I read this article and thought, ah, that's what they're calling it. <laughs> um, the idea being a kind of programmatic universe. Now, what I mean by that, I I write computer programs and what I do is I write sections of code and I class them together as what we call functions. So if there comes a need to, for example, display the date on a screen, all we do is we write a little bit of code that calls that function and the function is called and it the little script runs and it works out what today's date is. And it dumps it on the screen. Okay. But that function only runs when it's needed. It's a bit like if you just expand that into a computer game, you know, when you've got the um, these kind of first-person computer games where you can run around shooting things. Yep. There's potentially an entire universe out there for this character to move through. Mm-hmm. Those parts of the program only run when needed. So when when the character moves to point X, Y, Z in the game, there's a a trigger that says, ah, they're in this position, now they need to see this scenery. Mm. Mm. But up to that point, it's it's just code. And I tend to I tend to sort of think that a little bit with the idea of the moon. If no one looks at the moon, it's still potentially there, but it's not needed. So when we then look at the moon or observe the moon, that function runs. And it's a function that we all share as well. We must all be tapped into this kind of mm. central database of functions in order for us all to have the same experience. I don't look at the moon and see a banana. I see the moon. Right. You know, but if someone fiddled with the code, I could see something completely different to you. you know? sure. So, so I, do, I do feel that the universe is there without us. But I don't necessarily think it's being used. But then you've just introduced this idea that there's always an observer. Yeah, I, I, exactly. I don't think that 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 means. I don't think it t- it takes anything away from the idea that w- what's really behind our experiences is something like potential, the potential mm-hmm. for the physical object. And um, that Bernardo Castro, who I've mentioned several times, he he talks about this where he says that the physical, the things that we call physical, are what the mental looks like from across a dissociative boundary. 
So he says, look, we're God. We split off from God and become this. Well, we become the self-consciousness in Hegel's words that confronts another self-consciousness. That's what happens. God fractures off and suddenly there are two two conscious beings that can now interact with one another. That's perfect. Yeah. The the I well, I was just talking about observers. Mm-hmm. Is there always an observer in order for reality to be real? Because what we're what we're essentially saying here is everything starts as potentiality. It's only when you observe the potentials that one of them collapses to become what we call real. Yes. That's essentially it. And we're all doing that. And sometimes we're observing the same thing. And when we observe the same thing, hopefully we see the same thing. Otherwise we end up with a, with a mess. So there right. must be some underlying, either some underlying kind of, universal database that ties everything together that says when you you know when this happens this is what you see or hear or feel Mm. so we all share that or i'm starting to think from what you just said or there is one observer that is making all these things happen yes and we're just instances of that same observer yes i think that's what the um, Heigl. Yeah, I think I think that's exactly right. And and there's a way of talking about this potentiality that a philosopher named Walter Stacy uh, gave in a book uh, from the turn of the century, early 1900s, and he he calls it non-being. And it's he takes that word from the East, from Taoism and Hinduism. And pe- people like to think that if being is all there is, then not being means nothing. Um. And that's not true. That's not at all true. There's there's no such thing as nothing. There never has been and there never will be. I agree. I, that is something I've come come to conclude recently. Mm. There's always something. So non, non-being is the state of things, the state of the physical uh, physical reality when it's when it's switched not observed off. or when it's switched off, when it's dissociated, however you want to call okay. it. Okay. Let me let me try and put this all together. So this is a quote from Alan Watts. When this new sensation of self arises, it is at once exhilarating and a little disconcerting. In immediate contrast to the old feeling, there is indeed a certain passivity to the sensation as if you were a leaf being blown along by the wind until you realise that you are both the leaf and the wind. Mm, The world outside your skin is just as much you as the world inside they move together inseparably and at first you feel a little out of control because the world outside is so much vaster than the world inside your body is no longer a corpse which the ego has to animate and lug around there is a feeling of the ground holding you up and of the hills lifting you when you climb them air breathes itself in and out of your lungs and instead of looking and listening Light and sound come to you on their own. Mm. Eyes see and ears hear as wind blows and water flows. All space becomes your mind. Time carries you along like a river, but never flows out of the present. The more it goes, the more it stays, and you no longer have to fight or kill it. Mm. This is this kind of all-encompassing idea that you are not only the observer, you are the observed. Absolutely. The idea that we, you know, the earth has peopled itself with us. We have come from the earth. This is where every single thing is interconnected, which is why I said at the beginning, it seems like a contradiction when we come up with things like, um, I am not, 
I don't think that's possible. It's not no. possible for us not to exist. The idea of uh, you are dust and so to dust you will return is purely talking about the human, the human form. That's mm. all it's, it's talking about. It's not talking about the I am. Agreed. Agreed. Agreed? Yes. Um, is it possible, Alan continues, that myself, my existence, so contains being that nothing, uh, that death is merely the off interval in between an on-off pulsation, which must be eternal, because every alternative to this pulsation, it, its absence, would in due course imply its presence. And then he makes this wonderful little thought that birth is the cause of death. <laughs> birth is the cause of death. Yeah. And yeah. it's just this cycle of birth and death, birth and death. So that brings us back to the cause and effect uh, discussion. Cause and effect. Yes. So I would say birth and death, birth does cause death, obviously, but it's because birth and death are one thing. You know, yes. it's a, a process we call life, you know, yes. they're not different things. It's this coming into being and going out of being, mm. but the, whatever it is behind it is still being, it is almost like God's breath breathing in and out and in. I like and yeah. Out. yeah, I actually wrote a poem on that called God's Breath. So he says the the only real you is the one that comes and goes, manifests and then withdraws itself eternally in and out as every conscious being. For you is the universe looking at itself from billions of points of view, points that come and go so that the vision is forever new. What we see as death, empty space or nothingness is only the trough between the crests of this endlessly waving ocean. It is all part of the illusion that there should seem to be something to be gained in the future and that there is an urgent necessity to go on and on until we get it. Yet just as there is no time but the present and no one except the all and everything, there is never anything to be gained, though the zest of the game is to pretend that there is. <laughs> That's great, isn't it? This idea of, I, I know as Jehovah's Witnesses, we used to be told that you can live forever. Which sounds great on the surface, um, but then you get these speakers. There was one the other day I was watching telling Jehovah's Witnesses that they can not only live for a thousand years in paradise, but they will live for a hundred thousand years, a million years, a hundred million years, a hundred billion years. And the idea was that you would be like this for a hundred billion years. <laughs> and that doesn't really appeal to me. No. I, like the, I like the idea of dying, if I'm honest. And then realizing who I am again, you know, going back to that source, godlike state, and realizing, oh, yeah, I know who I am. And then doing it all over again as somebody else or something else. You know, next time I might be a tree or a, a rock or something. Sure. Does that sound crazy or does that, make, does that make sense? No, it doesn't sound crazy. It makes me think about reincarnation. Like there's a lot of, a lot of religious ideas yep. that when, you, when I was younger, I would write off as unscientific or impossible. And reincarnation is one of those things that was always intriguing, but I never took it seriously. But after I had a mystical experience in 2018, I, I can't brush that off anymore. The idea of reincarnation, it, well, there's some synchronicities involved. Reincarnation, like we were talking about with energy earlier, um, energy is not created or destroyed. And that's what our religious stories tell us about 
the soul. You know, it, it's 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 never created or destroyed. It just gets recycled, you know, uh, from one form into another. And you, when you see that explanation of, of reincarnation mirroring our understanding of matter and physics, then you have to see synchronicity. You have to say, well, there's something like a fractal relationship between energy and the spirit. We're, we're, we're noticing them behaving in the same way, following the same rules. And, uh, and so the deeper reality is the rules, you know? I like that. And this, this actually changes my complete perception of death, if I'm honest. I think the way a person dies can be not very nice, can be traumatic, you know, if it's war or, you know, if you, you, you sort of miss your family or friends when they die, that kind of thing. But if you can get over the idea that, you know, death is the end, it's not. If you can get over that idea, death itself is almost like the ultimate opportunity. You see, Alan Watts calls it the golden opportunity for awakening into knowledge that one's actual self is the self that plays the universe. You know, there's something wonderful about that, that when you die, you actually realize everything and then you can play the game again. Mm. I'll just read a uh, little quote and then perhaps we can just finish up on the idea of death itself. This one just says, um, thus, as my sensation of I-ness of being alive once came into being without conscious memory or intent, so it will arise again and again as the central self, the it appears as the self-other situation in its myriads of pulsating forms, always the same and always new, a here in the midst of a there, a now in the midst of then, and a one in the midst of many. And if I forget how many times I've been here and in how many shapes, this forgetting is the necessary interval of darkness between every pulsation of light. I return in every baby born. After people die, babies are born. And unless they are automator, Every one of them is, just as we ourselves were, the I experience coming again into being. The conditions of hereditary and environment change, but each of those babies incarnates the same experience of being central to a world that is other. Each infant dawns into life as I did without any memory of a past. Thus, when I'm gone, there can be no experience, no living through of the state of being a perpetual has-been. Nature abhors a vacuum. And the I feeling appears again as it did before. And it matters not whether the interval be 10 seconds or billions of years in unconsciousness, all times are the same brief instant. I love that because it's like rather than me wanting to hold on to this body for 100 billion years, I quite like the idea that I can let go of this and then allow another little baby to come Mm. into being and experience life. Yeah. And that will be me again. It will be me. It will be you. It will be us. Yes, it'll be you coming out of a dream. And and just like any dream, as soon as you awake, you forget it all. And you're and you're and you're a fresh little baby again with no with none of that knowledge you gain to take with you, you know? So does that change if 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 that is our view of of death, if we're sort of thinking of, you know, death as being not not this horrendous thing, but actually part of the process. Um, does that change how we view life itself and particularly attachments to life? It does for me, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's a there's a quote from Bernardo that I, I have been keeping in my back pocket. And this sounds like probably a good time to lay it on you. Uh, he's talk, talks about the experience of dying. And uh, he says, when you're experiencing, when you're going through that, when you're dying, 
you observe yourself as a as an object, right? You're the subject observing yourself as an object dying. And what you what you realize in that moment is that you aren't the thing dying. You're the thing watching the thing dying. Excellent. Yes. So that's a that's a mystery, but it's beautiful. I love that. Alan Watts describes it not as a disconnection, but just withdrawal. He says it's like the corpse that's left is a footprint or an echo, mm. a dissolving trace of something which the self ceased to do. So death is just when I stop being this instant, but I will still be. I will still be on the other side, and no doubt I shall come back into life as a little baby or something else at some point. In terms of attachment, that's affected my way of viewing life in general. Alan Watts said, it's like you were kicked off the edge of a precipice when you were born, (laughs) hurtling to your death. It is no help to cling to the rocks that are falling with you. (laughs) That's great. It's uh, it's just that mm. sort of acceptance, isn't it? And if you can go beyond that kind of ego feeling, mm. you know that death is death is not the end of everything. Mm. And that's, I suppose, that that applies with humanity as a whole. You know, even if humanity itself was to end, I can't see that being the end. Humanity no. would always come back. That's what the universe does. I, I think so. I think I think so. It produces people. If you look at if you look at what evolution has done on planet earth um starting with the big bang if you if you play the story of the earth uh what you have is a, is a a miracle let's say the big bang that over a long stretch of time finds a way to turn itself into a being that can recognize what it is and that is amazing i don't i don't have that is amazing and i think that has happened many many times over there's been this kind of constant reboot um i think roger penrose refers to the um cyclic conformal cyclic universe where the end of one is the beginning of another and then it may take billions of years before matter attains a certain point where it's able to be impressed with consciousness again but it will get there it will always get there and consciousness will always be there I'll just leave you with um, a little quote, if I can, from Erwin Schrodinger, a book called My View of the World. He says, thus, you can throw yourself flat on the ground, stretched out upon Mother Earth with the certain conviction that you are one with her and she with you. You are as firmly established, as invulnerable as she, indeed a thousand times firmer and more invulnerable. As surely as she will engulf you tomorrow, so surely will she bring you forth anew to new striving and suffering. And not merely someday, now, today, every day she is bringing you forth. Not once, but thousands upon thousands of times, just as every day she engulfs you a thousand times over. For eternally and always there is only now, one and the same now, the present is the only one thing that has no end. Mm. Or as a Hasidic rabbi put it, If I am I, because you are you, and if you are you because I am I, then I am not I and you are not you. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Leave you with that one. I'll just say that this idea of a creative and destructive, simultaneously creative and destructive force um, 
and and even calling it nature or Mother Earth, that's something that we've been doing since the beginning of time. You know, we, we have this primordial image of a great goddess, and it goes back to the Stone Age with figurines like the Venus of Brassempoi or the Venus uh, the Venus of Villendorf. Um, all these statues of uh, women with with uh, big breasts and and um, you know large hips and, and emphasizing this creative force, but then that same goddess is also like Kali, you know the the destructive, murderous uh, uh, woman that that eats her children, you know. So you you see you have this image that you have to understand as a paradox, but two things, uh, two opposite forces at once: the creative and the destructive. And I think that is a great analogy of of existence, life and death, the creative and the destructive. Yeah, it's this, um, this constant in and out, isn't it? If I may, I would just like to share a poem with you. Yes, please. This is a poem called God's Breath that I wrote, and it goes like this. I contemplate my breath, inhale, hold and ponder for a moment, exhale, I repeat each breath, life and death, and thus the universe, God's breath. Spirit, pure energy converted into matter with each exhalation. Mind, transmitted from source into innumerable conscious beings pervading the universe of which I am but one. Inhale, exhale, until I flicker and die as a candle. Yet while ever source exhales, new flames arise and continue breathing, minds thinking for their allotted time. And this does God, his breath exhaled, causing life, abundant consciousness until all is extinguished for a time. But then an inhalation, matter compressed into a singularity of purest energy as before, and in that singularity contained is all thought, as he holds and ponders for a moment before exhaling once again. Another cycle, a billion, billion lives and minds eternally breathing in, out, and to what end but to give life and thought and growth to source. Uh, the end, the end got me. That's exactly right, man. That is exactly right. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Chris. I've enjoyed that. Always a great time, Dan. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. Join us again soon. Bye for now. Bye.